Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. You know, as I was kind of going through the week and just, you know, thinking on, on some different things and, you know, just asking the Holy Spirit, you know, what, what's the direction for this morning? I just really just popped up in my spirit this whole idea of really interpretation. You know, interpretation of the scriptures is very important. And it's interesting that we have, I have a friend of mine who says about 40,000 Jesuses running around because that's about how many denominations there are worldwide. Isn't that crazy? So there's a part of me that believes that God gives us grace to be where we are in each step of the way. Uh, I think it's a bad thing to do is to get into a place where you feel like you've arrived, where you feel like in the journey I've finally arrived. If you could just be here where I am and see what I have, when really the body is a whole body with individual members, individual parts. And so interpretation of the scripture is very important. I would even say that theology is important, but it's best understood through the eyes and the life of Jesus. When we look through scripture, especially, you know, when we, when we jump back into the Old Testament, which I believe scripture is inspired, I believe it's beautiful, but I believe when you go through the Old Testament, take Jesus with you. Look through the lens of Jesus, and what's going to do, it's going to clear some things up, and it's going to show you that there's been this journey of people who are trying to figure out God. What is it like to have relationship with this Yahweh, with this God? And so today I want to look into that cultural thing. But first I want to look at Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says something really interesting here. Uh, You know, theology is the study of the nature of God and religious views. That's by definition. And so Jesus said this to his disciples. This is really powerful. Look at the first sentence. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now stop there for a second. What do keys do? They open things up. They unlock things, right? So I want us to get, it's important to to get context when we're reading scripture. He's saying, I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you a way to unlock what? The kingdom of heaven. I say this almost every week. What was the main message of Jesus? Repent, which means what? Turn around. Metanoia literally means to change your mind. So he says, change your mind. What's the next thing he says? The kingdom of God is within you. So what he's saying here is, is, I'm giving you keys. I want you to unlock what I've already put within you. But look at this. He says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Because here's the thing. When I read that scripture, depending on your background, depending on what denomination you came from, you, you immediately drew a picture, didn't you, in your mind. I mean, it's all different ways to take this. I'm going to bind. I'm going to loose. But binding and loosing, get this, were a first century way of talking about interpretation. If, if you, and this is the thing we need to do. When we look at scripture, and I say this kind of in jest sometimes, I'm like, you know that Jesus was a Jew, right? And people, some people literally go, what? I thought he was a Christian. <laughs> well, he was Christ-like. He was the Christ, the anointed one. But it's interesting here what he's saying to these guys. 
Because in Jewish terminology, they would have understood this. They would have thought, oh, binding and loosing. That's what we do with Scripture. When we meet at temple, when we're speaking with a rabbi and in groups, which I love that there was conversations with groups. It wasn't just one person up here telling everybody what to do. It was people together talking about the Torah, talking about Scripture. And so he was saying this, just like the rabbis do, I now give you the power. Think about this. This is big. This is a shift. This is a change. I'm giving you the power to bind and loose. I'm giving you the power to interpret Scripture. And by Holy Spirit leading you, I think you're going to come to some different outcomes from what we have in the past came to. In fact, think about Peter. Anyone familiar with Peter when he had the vision? He fell asleep and he had a vision. And this was after the cross. This is when they were trying to figure out ministry. What's next? You know, Jesus had died. They ran away. Then he rose again. They're like, oh, now we kind of see it. But he was on the top. He was on a rooftop. Someone was making lunch. He falls asleep, right? And this vision happens. This sheet comes down. And in the sheet is all these animals, but not just any animals. They were the unclean animals, animals that were against the the Mosaic law to eat, okay? And what does Peter say? What does the Lord say? The Lord says, take and eat. How many know what Peter's response was? Uh, I can't do that. They're unclean. I can't do that. It's unclean. It's against the law. Three times God says to him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. So what happened here? Well, Peter, by Holy Spirit, by vision, was beginning to see things different. That it wasn't just a gospel for the Jews, the chosen people, that this gospel was for the entire world. That began to open Peter's eyes. We also see that the council in Jerusalem, they were trying to figure out, you know, we have all these Greeks coming in to this faith. What are we supposed to do with them? If they join the faith, do we need to have them circumcised or not? And I love their answer. They said this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And so here they are. They're binding and they're loosing. We should be doing this in our faith. Sometimes we should bind the things that are, okay, this is foundational. This has helped me. Now, there are some things that have helped me in a certain part of the journey, but then I grow to a point where it doesn't help me anymore. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that it's bad. It means that we're on a journey. I mean, I, I like this. Uh, a friend of mine uses this, this example. Uh, how many have children here? Okay. How many know this, that when they first start wearing shoes, they start with a particular size, correct? But how many know that at some point you're going to have to get a bigger size shoe? Why? Because they're growing. Man, we are on it today. I love this. Because they're growing. And what he's saying through that, that example, is that, You know, one form will work for a particular time, but eventually we have to move to another form. But what we do is we bind to those things. There's a lot of things I learned growing up in church that I cling to, like this is foundational, this is wow. But here's what I found. My beliefs have changed over the last, I mean, I don't know how many years now, 40, 50 years. My beliefs have changed since I really made that decision to say, yes, Jesus at seven years old, I remember in front of my, my grandma's house walking, and I told my dad, I was asking him all the way home from school about this Jesus thing and what it meant, and he led me in the prayer, and I was like, all right, I'm in. This is cool. 
But all these years later, I'm realizing that I've moved from one form to the next. I've held on to the things that are dear, that are foundational, that are truth to me. But I have to move on in this journey. It's so important that we do this. Sometimes we get stuck in a box, and even God himself is not going to force us outside the box. We have to be open and willing. And how many know it takes faith to step outside one form into the next? Amen? And so for these people, it was like that. But Jesus tells his disciples that I've shown you by example. If you look at the example of Jesus, I mean, how many times did he say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. What was Jesus doing? He was binding and loosing. He was literally saying, yeah, you've heard it like this, but I'm showing you a different way. I think it's absolutely beautiful. So he's saying, you've seen me do this by example. Guess what? Now it's your turn, guys. It's your turn to make decisions about what's written in Scripture. By Holy Spirit's influence and inspiration, right? We don't just go rogue on this. But sometimes this is where that interpretation comes from. And I know I was talking to someone the other day, and they're like, man, you know, I mean, how, how is everyone expected to dig into something that deep? And I would say you're not expected to. I would look for opportunities where you have a passion to, or, you know, for me, it'd be, I might read something for, you know, the, the hundredth time, or maybe I've read it 500 times, and that 501st time I read it and go, okay, wait a minute, there's something different here. Oh, what am I seeing? Why? Because my belief systems are changing. I'm seeing God clear, hopefully. I'm seeing myself clear. And as I do, something pops out and I go, ooh, that, that doesn't seem right. And so I look it up in the original translation, and I go, oh, okay, that word. I wouldn't say it was necessarily mistranslated. Let me tell you this. Greek and Hebrew ancient languages are absolutely beautiful. It's, they're so deep. There's mood. There's tense. There's all these things. And English is just kind of like, meh. So sometimes to find an English word that can match up is really hard. So I'm not blaming anyone. I don't think it was on purpose. There was an ulterior motive. I'm just saying in those moments, maybe we dig a little deeper and say, what is really going on here? The other thing to look at is history. Who was that letter written to? What time period was it written in? It makes a big difference on how we interpret things. Does that make sense? And so we see here that the followers of Jesus were binding and loosing. They were discussing and debating. They were wrestling and working out what kingdom life looks like wherever they found themselves. In this situation, how does the kingdom look right here, right now? So here's the thing, and I say this a lot. Maybe it's okay to ask questions. Because sometimes when we get into that whole Western evangelical religious system, we're told, don't ask questions, just do what we say. It's unfortunate, but it's true. I just talked to someone on the phone the other day. They called the church and said, hey, I just want to talk to you. I've been really struggling with some things in my life and trying to, you know, figure out really just religious trauma, burnout on things. I never left God, but I just, some of these things, just the legalism and how, and the fear-based, you know, um, messages, I just, something inside me is screaming, no, this can't be how God is. And so I was able to encourage this person and talk through it. It was beautiful. But here's the thing. We need to be sometimes given permission to ask questions because religion doesn't let us. Come on, just being honest. And maybe it's totally acceptable to look at different ways of interpreting Scripture. Jesus did. The disciples did. And so maybe we should as well. Come on, somebody. And so with that idea in mind, 
I want to take a look at a particular story today, and the title of the message is this, The God Who Demands Sacrifice. The God Who Demands Sacrifice. How many are familiar with the story of, we would say, the offering of Isaac by Abraham? Some would say the sacrifice of Isaac. I actually love the Jewish way of saying it. They say the binding of Isaac. This is how Jews term it. Because he wasn't sacrificed, right? Anyone familiar with the story? Isaac wasn't sacrificed. He was bound, but then God did something miraculous. But sometimes just beneath the surface, there's a lot more going on. So I want to start in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. Then God said, now he's speaking to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now stop right there. Does this kind of sound like an echo of something later? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's another message for another time. I just think it's cool when you see those correlations. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Look at this. And go to the region of Moriah. Now imagine Abraham. He's like, all right, God, I'm going to take my son. What are we going to do? Maybe the Starbucks just got put in over there. We're going to have a coffee or something. We don't know. But look what he says next sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, let me just say this. What kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? I'm just asking. Because if we get all into, like, religious mode, we just go, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the mountain. Okay, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Okay, that'll make sense. Does that make sense to you? I want us to just think logically for a minute. Now, I know this was thousands of years ago, but I want us to think logically. If you're a person with any sense of emotion, you would go, uh, what? We're not just sacrificing here. And I know the kids are gone, but I just want to get a visual here, sacrificing. You tie me up in an altar that is, is laden with wood, and then you, maybe out of mercy stab me, and then you light the wood on fire. That's awesome. Now, if you've ever wanted to do that to your children, we need to get you some help, right? Now, go with me here. I'm not trying to say that Scripture's wrong. I want us to get something, okay? The question that we would all have or should have is what kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? I mean, people have wrestled with this story for centuries. You can go online, you can find story after story, you know, whether it's rabbi, you know, Jewish teaching or, or preachers in Christianity or Muslims. I mean, no matter what, you have these different ideas that have come out of this story. And even I came to the point where, to be honest, I wanted a better answer than God wanted to see if Abraham had enough faith. I mean, this is what I heard. I'm not saying it's a bad message, but growing up in children's church with, I don't know if anyone remembers the green felt board and the little characters that would stick to it. I mean, it's kind of morbid when you think about it. You're telling these little kids that are five, six, and seven, yeah, and you got little sticky things with a guy with a knife raised over his son. It's like, what is going on here? But see, at that time, it worked for me. The form worked for me at that time, and I thought, you know what? That is so beautiful that Abraham had so much faith in God that he was obedient. That's where I was until I wasn't. Because there came a point, as I began to understand more and more about God, the character of God, that I went, this doesn't jive 
with the God and the Father that Jesus showed me and has shown us. So what's really going on, right? Now, is faith, faith of Abraham part of this? Absolutely, it's part of it. But I mean, human sacrifice? I mean, have we really thought this through? I actually heard a story of a preacher. And again, this isn't against anyone, but this is where he was in his belief system at the time. But this preacher, he actually was, you know, in the middle of a sermon, and he said that he took his teenage son up on a hill, and he read this story out of Genesis about Abraham and Isaac, and then he literally told his son this. He said that, I will always love God more than I love you. Now, were his intentions right? I believe so. But um, I think that's messed up. I couldn't tell my son that. Do I love God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But to almost put this spin on it and almost get that child to see God in a certain light, but I understand why, because I've been there, okay? So again, what kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? I think to get to this answer, we first need to maybe have a better understanding of the history of religion specifically the history of this time, I believe it can help us to come up with a better answer to this question. So if we think about early humans thousands of years ago, you know, they don't know what we know. They, they just don't understand. They didn't have the science at the time that we have, and so there was a lot of things that were, um, you know, mystical. There were a lot of things that were unknown. And so for them, they came to this realization because there's things that we need in life to be sustained, right? And so they came to this realization that their survival as a people was dependent on things like food and water. Now, for us, we don't even really think about this. I mean, you know, we just had a Big Mac, a large fry, a Coke, and maybe an ice cream cone, and an hour later, like, I'm starving. No, we don't know what starving means, right? I'm not saying you're wrong, Maybe ask the Holy Spirit about that. But what I'm saying is we don't know what this is like. We don't know what it's like because we can go to a faucet and for most of us turn on fresh, clean, running water. We take it for granted, right? We can walk into a grocery store and it's like sometimes there's, it drives me bonkers. There's too much to choose from. So for us, it's not an issue. But, but for them, say for them, say for ancient people, They came to this realization, in order to survive, we need food and water. And for the food to grow, it needs things like sun, things like water in a certain proportion. That's the only way we can survive. Too much water, guess what? Things get washed away. Things drown. Not enough, guess what? Plants die. Too much sun, you know what happens to plants? They wilt. But not enough sun, and they die as well. And so they had these basic observations, and it brought these people to a conclusion, get this, that they were dependent on unseen forces that they never could have control of for their survival. Does this make sense? So this is just the state of mind that they were in. And so the belief arose that these forces are either on your side or they aren't. Uh, Your crops grow or they don't right? You have kids, or they build, they have children, or you don't. Your animals stay healthy or not. But why is this? And so the question was this, how do we keep these unseen forces on our side? What do we need to do in order to survive? 
The next time you have a harvest, guess what you did? You took a portion of that harvest and you would offer it on an altar as a sign of gratitude. Why? Because the forces, the gods, the goddesses, the divine beings, they'll be on your side. Does this make sense? And so this is kind of where their mindset was. Now, imagine what people uh, would offer sacrifices. Imagine this. They would offer sacrifices, but, but what if it didn't rain? What if the sun didn't shine? What if their animals still got diseases or they weren't able to have children? Well, obviously, they concluded they didn't offer enough. I should have offered that extra stalk of corn. I should have offered the extra sheep or that goat. And so they offered more and more and more. You see, here's the thing. You never knew where you stood with the gods. You just never knew. The gods are angry. The gods are demanding. And if you don't please them, they will punish you by bringing famine, war, disease, pestilence. You following me? But what if things went well? Well, if it rained and your crops would produce, you had the right amount of sun, it was perfect, everything was great. Well, then it appeared that the gods were pleased with you. What would you do in that situation? Well, then you need to offer them thanks. So guess what? Here we go again. More sacrifices on the altar to thank those gods. But here's the question. How would you know that you offered enough? You never really could. If things went well, you never knew if you'd been grateful enough and offered enough things. If things didn't go well, well, clearly you hadn't done enough. Does that make sense? And so whether things went well or not, the answer was always this, sacrifice more. Give more. Offer more. Because, again, you never knew where you stood with the gods. And so what would you do? You'd offer a portion of your crop. You'd offer a goat. You'd offer a lamb, maybe a cow, maybe a few cows, maybe some birds just for good measure. I don't know. We, we've got to make sure that the gods are appeased. And so we see that in early religion, in order to please the gods, you kept having to offer more. That's how the cycle works. And think about this. What was the most valuable thing you could offer the gods to earn their favor? Anyone? A child. Having children back then was not like it is now. And women still have complications. Still, things still happen now. But it was a big deal. In fact, if you were a woman who was barren or couldn't have children, you were seen as worthless and nothing. And you usually were cast out and you would have to turn to a life of prostitution or something like that in order just to live, to have food, to have water. Different times. Are you sensing there's a different time in the ancient world? So what was the most valuable thing? Someone must have went, okay, I got it now. This, this has got to be the ultimate, my child. Well, of course, right? That'll show the gods our devotion. Well, is that barbaric? Yes. Is it twisted? Yes. But that's where they were in their mindset. So I want you to understand this. Where As we go through the story, I want you to get into that frame of mind. Okay, this is sick. It's twisted. It's barbaric. I know. I know. But that was thousands of years ago. Doesn't make it right, but that's how they thought. This is what would truly appease the gods. It's the most valuable thing, the most valuable commodity I have. Can you see how child sacrifice was so prominent in ancient times without just casting them out as barbaric and crazy? They didn't know what we know today. 
And here's the other thing I should say. This is where religion takes you. To the place where you'd offer that which was most valuable to you. So I'm going to go back to the story of Abraham. When God tells Abraham to offer his son, get this, he isn't shocked. Look at this, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. So the dude was on it right away. Look at this. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Why? Because that was the sacrifice that was requested of his God, Yahweh. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering... This just cracks me up. The dude gets up early. He gets his dog. Gets, gets, he's cutting wood, preparing for this. Like, is anyone here going, Abraham, at any point you could have went, God, are you sure about this? We don't see anything in the story. He's cutting the wood for the burnt offering. The burnt offering was to burn his son. Okay, anyway, he set out for the place God had told him about. So he's doing it. He gets right to it. He doesn't argue. He doesn't protest. Get this. He doesn't even ask for instructions. Did anyone catch that? Like, he didn't go, okay, God, so what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Well, this is why. Abraham was born and raised in Ur of Chaldees. This is where he was from, which is, it's in the southeastern part of modern-day Iraq. This is where he resided, his family was, before he followed Yahweh. Now, in Joshua 24, it says that Abraham and his father worshipped idols. Did you know this? He was an idol worshiper? In fact, we, you know, we can make some educated guesses about his religion by looking at history and religious artifacts uh, from that period. Ur of Chaldees was actually an ancient city that flourished until somewhere around 300 B.C., and they worshipped the moon god, and his name was Nana. <laughs> now, my kids call my mom Nana, so she's not the moon god. I just want to make sure that we know she's not into this. But why, think about this, Abraham was a moon worshiper. This is crazy. But why? Well, you know, they were smart enough. They weren't a dumb people, right? They didn't have all the scientific things we do, but they weren't dumb. They understood that the moon had the power to control the heavens and the life cycle on earth. They could see this. And to the Chaldeans, the phases of the moon represented the cycle of birth, growth, decay, and death. And what's interesting of all the Mesopotamian gods, Nana was supreme because he was a source of fertility for crops. Listen to this. Herds and families are bearing children. You see how this is starting to work out? See, prayers, offerings, and sacrifices were offered to the moon god to invoke his blessing. So when you look at kind of what's going on here in the mindset of Abraham, he clearly knows what to do because he's done it before. And so he does it, of course. That's how Abraham understood the world to work. The gods demanded that which was most valuable to you, and if you didn't give in, you'd pay the price. That's how people saw gods at the time. And so for Abraham, this was going to be a teachable learning moment. Because here's the thing, when we read of these heroes of faith, it's so easy to go, yeah, man, they were like all in, they were serving Yahweh, he was the one and only God. But actually, in this time frame, even in the time of Israel, up until about maybe two, four hundred years before Jesus, they actually thought that there were many gods, but theirs was the most powerful. It wasn't until just a few hundred years before Jesus that they actually believed there's only one true God. They just thought our God's the most powerful. Yahweh's the one. Well, yeah, others thought Baal was, 
right? Others thought, you know, all these, uh, uh, who's the other God there in the Old Testament? Hmm? Yeah, Moloch, yep. And so I knew it was an M. Thanks, Morris. M for Morris, M for Moloch. Great. But they all thought their God was the biggest, the greatest, the best. And so for Abraham, this was a teachable moment. And so Abraham sets out. And when they get to the mountain, what does Abraham say to his servants? Now, this here is wonderful. Look at this verse 4. It says, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, listen to this, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. But he doesn't stop there. He says, We will worship, and then, what's the next word? We will come back to you. (laughs) What? Abraham... Uh, you're going to offer your son, right? That's what the whole story is about, correct? God's telling Abraham to offer his son, but what Abraham says to the servants and that is that he's going to offer his son, and then we will come back. In other words, I'll come back with my son. Okay, Abraham, something's going on here, right? It's so easy to just read over this, but there's something more going on in this story just below the surface, Like any story, even the parables of Jesus, it's begging for us to see something far more crucial going on. And so as they walk up the mountain, this is crazy. Isaac asked Abraham where the sacrifice will come from. (laughs) Isn't this morbid? I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, Hey, Dad. Yeah. um, I'm not seeing a sacrifice. Where's that going to come from? (laughs) You know, as many have understood the story, he's going to his death because his dad loves God so much, right? I mean, that's kind of, as a a child, at least for me, what I saw. Please tell me you find that extremely offensive, right? But we've already seen Abraham insinuate that something else is up. So I don't think we have to buy into that angle. What was Abraham's answer to his son? Look at this. God will provide. There's definitely some faith here. God will provide. It's almost as if Abraham's in on this. And then Abraham gets ready to offer his son, but he doesn't. Why? Because God stops him. And then God offers a ram to him for him to sacrifice instead. End of story, right? Nope. It gets better. An angel actually shows up and says that Abraham is going to be blessed And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. (laughs) Now, back to the original question. What kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? Think about that for a moment. Here's an answer. Not this one. Not Yahweh. The other gods may demand your firstborn, but not this God. So if God doesn't want Abraham to offer his son, why all the drama? I mean, that's a lot of drama. I can't even imagine what Abraham and Isaac were going through, what Sarah was thinking. What Now, again, even though they understood this was a cultural thing, there still had to be some, uh, I mean, even Jesus, knowing he was going to go to the cross and the garden was praying, and it said he sweat as drops of blood. I mean, the guy was like stressing out. Well, that's Jesus. He didn't stress. He felt every emotion, every pain, every temptation we have, yet was without sin. He still said, your will be done, not mine. Why all the drama? I want to propose to you that the test here 
wasn't whether Abraham would obey. Rather, what was being tested was Abraham's discernment of the character of God. A little different way to look at it. Was this a God of mercy? Or was this a deity just like the one from any other ancient Near Eastern gods who would require child sacrifice? Now, we know that later, uh, through the law and the prophets, they agree with this by telling us that God prohibits child sacrifice. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says this. This is just absolutely beautiful. He said, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Now, think about this. Jeremiah is speaking to Israel. Israel was reverting to child sacrifice. And this is an oracle of God saying the words of God. Look at this next phrase. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it ever enter my mind. That opens a whole can of worms, doesn't it? But the prophet, the oracle of God is saying, the idea of burning your children on an altar It never even entered my mind. I never commanded this, and he was calling them out on it. See, they had the example of Abraham, right? But what did Abraham learn? There's three points I want to make to wrap this up this morning. Number one, say number one. The drama in this story is the point. The drama, all this buildup. Come on, is anyone like movies here? I love movies. I love TV shows. I just tell you, man, I mean, I have done my share of binging. When there's a good show, we're going to watch it, right? But there's something about movies especially that, you know, if you just even look up a plot of a movie or how to write a script, it's going to tell you there's these flows, and it always builds up to this climactic point, and then there's a payoff. This is what these stories do for us. Drama is the point. Abraham knows what to do when he's told to offer his son because this is where all religion leads. He already knows this is the way it has. This is the way it goes. So at first, this God appears to be like all other gods. The story is like the other stories about gods demanding acts of devotion and obedience. Gods who are never satisfied. Now think about the first audience for this story. They would have heard this idea before. They would have known this idea of child sacrifice. It would have been familiar, but then it's not. It takes this crazy, shocking turn, and it comes out of nowhere. This God, this is what's so beautiful. This God disrupts the familiar story by interrupting the child sacrifice. Stop. Don't do this. Just picture an early audience going, like the gasp could be heard everywhere. Because, you know, in this time, they didn't have a bunch of written word. They had stories that were handed down. Can you imagine hearing this story and going, this is different than the other gods? I mean, I think you would have a sense of Yahweh is so much more loving, so much more gracious. I mean, what, this God stopped the sacrifice? The gods don't do that. The drama in this story is the point. Number two. This is beautiful. I've been saying it a lot today, but it is beautiful. The God in this story provides. The God in this story provides. Think about this. Worship and sacrifice was about you giving to the gods. This story is about this God giving to Abraham. 
telling you. There's so many things, even in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we can see. Even when God acquiesced, I believe, to the idea of the law and sacrificial system, we see when he's given instruction, the very first thing that's said, the Hebrew word, when he says, uh, like, giving out the lines of what to do, the Hebrew word is this, draw near. Listen, in ancient cultures at the time, there was no God that ever said, draw near to me. But yet this God, Yahweh, says, draw near. See, always flipping the script, always showing something different. This story is about God giving to Abraham, not Abraham having to give to God. A God who does the giving, a God who does the providing. Listen, I know that in the new covenant following Jesus, we're like, yep, he's provided everything. It's kind of like just lingo we can say and not even think deeply on. But for this people at this time, this was unheard of. A God doesn't just give to you. This would be mind-blowing. This would be groundbreaking. A story about a God who doesn't demand anything, but instead gives and blesses, unheard of. And so in this story, God provides. Number three, Abraham is told that God is just getting started. This is just the beginning, Abraham. This is before the law. This is before the prophets. This is before Jesus. This is before the apostles. It started back in the time of Abraham. I want to show you my character. God is just getting things started and that this God is going to bless Abraham with such love and favor that through Abraham, listen to this, everybody on earth is going to be blessed. That sounds like the gospel to me. These are the things that even Peter had to learn, that it's not just for a one chosen people group. This is for everyone. Here in the 21st century, sometimes we have to remind ourselves, it's not just about me and my denomination. This is about and for everyone. Look at this in Genesis 22:18. He says, and through your offspring, all nations, say all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You see, God isn't angry or demanding. This God has intentions to bless everybody, (laughs) everyone, not just people who love and obey and offer sacrifices to this God. Think about this. This God intends to bless all people everywhere for all time. And what is required of Abraham? Trust, faith, belief. What is required of all people? trust, faith, and belief. I know it seems so simple, but this is the gospel. Jesus came to show us the ultimate act of love and died on a cross and said, this is how much I love you. I will take your pain. I will take your sickness. I will take your sorrow. I will take your brokenheartedness. I want to heal you, but will you believe? Will you accept? That's all it takes. No sacrifice needed. I mean, Jesus didn't say, all right, I'm up here. Can a few more people jump up here and get sacrificed as well? No. What does Hebrews tell us? Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. It's over. In fact, I believe it was through Jeremiah, when he was going on this whole rant, he said as an oracle of God, 
I detest your ceremonies and your feasts, your sacrifices. I'm over it. It's not about sacrificial system. I've allowed that. It's made you feel like other cultures, because I don't know if you know this, but other cultures had gods and temples and covenants and arks that had covenants within them. It wasn't just exclusive to the Israel. They wanted to be like other cultures. They even wanted to have kings like the others. And the prophet said, no, this is not going to go good for you. They're like, nope, we want it. And God said, okay, and acquiesced again. Why? Because that's what love does. It's just amazing when you see the story play out. But there's no sacrifice needed. Just the belief that this God can be trusted. Will you trust me? Can you see all the new ideas in this story? Can you see why the story was so captivating and why it has withstood the test of time? To this people at this time, this is something brand new. This God provides. He intends to bless all people, and he's just getting started. Isn't that wonderful? Even in the cross, we see this, this God that blesses. Paul writes this, for God was in Christ. That first sentence just blew my mind like, few years back, I went, wait, 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 wait. Because did you ever picture Jesus on the cross and God is somewhere over here watching? Anyone? But God says, no, I was in Christ. Doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. You didn't do anything. I'm reconciling you. No longer counting people's sins against them. I think we forgot about that. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Why? Because when you know that the God of the universe has extended relationship to you, is not counting any sin against you, that has sacrificed himself for you, and you awaken to this, it's like, how can you not tell others about it? Not how dirty and filthy and low down they are, how much they're loved by God and how much he desires relationship with them. Isn't that awesome? So will you trust, will you have faith, and will you believe? Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. Scripture tells us that it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. And we thank you, Father, that it's through your kindness that we come to this place of mind change, of seeing things differently, of seeing you differently, of seeing ourselves differently. I pray that through this message, through this story, Holy Spirit, you're working on our hearts to see you differently, to see you as a God who's not looking for a sacrifice. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves. The reason that we do what we do is because they're works, they're good works that you've already worked in in advance for us to walk in them. And how do we do that? By hooking up with you, by connection with you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, you're showing us on a day-by-day basis the truth of who we are. And we begin to live out of that truth, that authentic identity, who you've made us to be, made in your image and likeness. Let us show that to all people around us so they then can awaken to what you've done within them as well. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 
For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.